Good day, Kings Point residents. Raul Vargas here behind the controls at your Kings Point podcast production studio. And today I have the pleasure of joining us, candidate for congressional seat of Broward County District 20, the seat vacated by the passing of the late Alcee Hastings, who sadly passed away in April of this year, Miss Sheila Sherfulis McCormick. How are you, Sheila? I'm good, and thank you so much for having me, and hello, everybody, at King's Point. Well, it's a pleasure that you're participating with us today in this question and answer forum for the residents to enlighten them on this upcoming election. So I'd like to start, Sheila, by asking you to tell the residents here at King's Point a little something about yourself. Sure. Well, um, as you mentioned, I'm Sheila Sherfus McCormick. I am a mom, a wife, um, and I've, I've been a healthcare CEO for the last 15 years. Um, I'm also I've been lobbying in D.C. for the last 10 years. I initially started going to D.C. with uh, the National Home Care and Hospice Association, and going with also with the um, AARP during the time when the Affordable Health Care Act was being passed. Uh, we were very successful in our home health agency, and we were having really great numbers for the different demonstrations. So I was asked to actually come to D.C. and speak to different members in Congress about how the Affordable Health Care Act is actually going and the implementation process. From there, um, I just felt like I could do more after being exposed, and that was like 10 years ago. So I started going every year, lobbying throughout the years and talking about the different issues we we had going on. So for the last 10 years, my real focus has been on health care, ensuring that we have our seniors can retire at home with dignity, and ensuring that we have some kind of economic revitalization with the jobs that we're providing for people who are working in health care and other markets. That's um, from there. <laughs> from there, um, I, I ended up running. I ran because my daughter had a learning disability, and I saw that the monies that need to be there for our disabled population wasn't present. And it was more than just a singular problem as far as our seniors, dignity, health care. It was more expansive. And I felt like I can really change that hands-on, especially since I was writing policies and amendments and really having that hands-on process in writing legislation in Congress. Wow, that's cool. And is your daughter doing a lot better now? Yes, she's actually 18 and she will be going to, she's a senior. She's going to be going to college, which we're excited about. And we were able to um, isolate different programs and resources for her and other kids who have learning disabilities. It was a long, long fight. And anybody who has grandkids with autism, attention deficit, um, there's a gamut that we see of different learning issues. You know, it's really hard when you get that initial diagnosis, and it's hard assessing funding. Um, and it's the same thing when you actually have a parent who's a senior who's sick. Um, you know, my my dad had cancer and the type of cancer he had, um, and my father-in-law. So it's, it's devastating trying to find it. But we had a really long fight, and recently Congress um, passed the bill giving $3 billion to go towards children with learning disabilities. And the state of Florida is actually getting $200 million of that which has been a long-fought <laughs> long battle, but I'm just so happy that we were able to do that. And that allows me to know that we can do more for our seniors. Well, congratulations to your daughter on her new endeavors and her journey as she goes through college now. That's good to Thank hear. You. 
Now, you know, um, Kings Point is a 55 and older seniors community. And um, a good amount of my questions are geared towards the senior community. How will you help the senior community in Broward County if elected into office? Well, I think we have to look at, I want to build from where we, I left off in Congress. Initially, when we first started lobbying in Congress, what we saw, there wasn't enough resources going towards senior seniors so, so they can actually have services within their communities. Back then, a lot of seniors were having to go into the hospital or assisted living facilities for any kind of injury. But we really lobbied hard and pushed hard to have resources so you can actually heal at home, have outpatient surgeries, just so you can kind of retire with dignity. Then we saw another obstacle with Social Security, the Social Security benefits, how they need to be expanded, but everybody was talking about contracting them. And we started fighting against the contraction or the erosion of Social Security. And we saw coupled with that erosion was the issue when it came to um, pharmaceuticals and getting medication. The prices, they're just absorbent. And so there's still a lot of, even though we've had accomplishments, there's still a lot of things that we need to do for our seniors. And because our district has such a large amount of seniors, because our state has one of the largest amount of seniors, it's very important that we have a strong advocate who can stand and be the voice for our seniors. And that's what I want to be. Um, and that's who I've been on the lobbying capacity. I don't know if you're aware, but the two states with the most people on Medicaid, Medicare, on um, senior benefits are Florida and California. But we haven't had Florida really shaping the policies that affect the seniors. We haven't had anybody in Florida really advocating for the seniors. And I'll give you an example of something that really just happened and no one said anything to them about what about our seniors. So if we look at the child tax credit that we just had, if you had children, everybody received the tax credit. Now that was a part of an economic stimulus plan. However, that plan left out seniors. So the implication is, okay, we're just going to help families, but our seniors are okay. That's, far, that's so far from the truth. In the beginning of the pandemic, me and my company were the first ones going out and delivering food to seniors because they were afraid to leave. We were delivering foods to seniors because some of them didn't even have money at that part to go get the food and they were by themselves, they were isolated. So when we look at who is more vulnerable and who really needs the assistance, it's our seniors. But because we don't have someone there to actually advocate for the seniors, it just slides on by and nobody mentioned, hey, what's the recovery for our seniors? And that's something I'm definitely dedicated to doing. That's awesome because it is very important because they've paid their dues and all they want to do is live the rest of their lives freely with no obstacles before them. Right. And even now with the Delta variant that's reoccurring, uh, as other people are still moving around, they don't understand how crippling it is for seniors. Even vaccinated people are getting the Delta variant. So if that's happening to the you know younger generations, how are our seniors going to function? Well, how, what limitations are they going to have? And this is where I say, okay, we have to look at the People's Prosperity Plan because what I'm proposing is that we can give stimulus checks to seniors first so they can first start getting the $1,000 a month for even a year or two years so they can be covered. That would give me so much peace of mind, you know, that my parents are covered, that, you know, my community, because our seniors, don't, that's my doctor when I was a little girl. You know, that's my pediatrician. And I want to make sure my pediatrician's covered. That's my senior who I knew. You know, I'm, I'm originally from New York. So I feel like every time I go around, I see the people I grew up with in New York, they're in Florida. 
So I want to make sure that they're taken care of because those are people who took care of me when I was growing up and who mentored me. So we have a duty to do that for our seniors. Yes, indeed. Now, I know your background is healthcare, so I'm going to intertwine two questions into one. You know, it's funny. It's unconscionable that we live in the world's richest nation and can't have some kind of affordable health care plan for everyone. What is your stance on affordable access to health care, and what is your input on Medicare for All? Well, I definitely believe in support in Medicare for All. I have read the bill, and I've gone over it several times. I've even had different conversations with Senator Bernie Sanders, who introduced it in the Senate. And um, my commentary on the bill is that the bill is like 75 pages long, and within that 75 pages, it really just talks about integration process for four years. So basically, they take the same Medicare program and just integrate everybody onto it. Now, anybody who has been on Medicare understands that that Medicare system doesn't cover everything. So we don't want to start integrating everyone onto a system that needs some tweaking. So I do believe we need to start expanding Medicare to include dental vision now. We need to start including more preventative care, such as diabetes reversal. Um, there's some, some types of diabetes can be reversed. Uh, we know that heart disease and certain um, cardiovascular issues can be prevented. And so if we focus on expanding for seniors and if we focus on prevention, then what we're going to find is that we'll have more money in the budget to kind of expand to everyone, but we need to have a real system in place. And I can tell you the biggest problem we have been having in pushing Medicare for all in Congress is that right now there really aren't any hard numbers. It's kind of like open it up for everyone, but you know as much as I know that when you're doing a budget, you kind of have to have a ballpark, right? You have to have a forecast. And that forecast has to be something that you're reducing. So we need to start making Americans healthier um, and slowly put them on it, introduce them to prevention, nutrition. And then as people are on Medicare for all, they can start becoming healthier and not just throwing people on Medicare who we know are going to end up getting sicker because we don't have the right vehicles in place. Simple things such as more organic foods, um, not allowing different people to put in different toxins in foods. Things like that can really help us shave off some of the expenses we have in healthcare and expand healthcare for everyone. Nice, and that's a very good answer. Now, my next question is, with this uh, booming housing market we have in Florida that's running off the charts, what is your input and take on affordable housing for our seniors? Well, you know, housing hasn't been reimagined for more than, what, 30 years? You know, where we are today is not where we were in the beginning when they first started writing and rethinking housing. Mm -hmm. We have to seriously rethink housing, and we have to start prioritizing seniors first. Um, and then children, and then people with families, because we're finding that the poverty rates in our seniors are astonishing, astonishing. And now we have people who worked very hard and had their pensions, and they can't afford someplace to live. This is problematic. If we cannot protect our elders, if we cannot find a place for them to rest peacefully, then what kind of society are we going to have? I traveled recently to Cleveland, and I saw all the homelessness, and it broke my heart because I was there before, and it seemed like the numbers multiplied. We can't allow ourselves in South Florida to get to a place where now we're going to be dealing with a homelessness epidemic. 
And that's why we have to act now in having some stipends. And one of the reasons why I even proposed my economic recovery checks is because that can start helping softening the blow until the market stabilizes. If we can get those checks out, even for a year, then we'll start seeing until the market stabilizes, then we're starting to help that problem of poverty and homelessness and the prices. And I did want to point out that when we initially introduced our People's Prosperity Plan, I wrote that plan a year ago, (laughs) a year ago. I wrote this plan because I saw what was going on with COVID. I saw how our businesses were declining. And I said, my God, we have to do something, something that's going to allow us to recover because this begging Congress for a stimulus check and not pre-planning what it's going to be, creating a budget of how we're going to fund it, it has to go first because you don't want to start spending without a budget. Do you know what I mean? You want to have a plan a proactive plan for economic recovery. And so I wrote the plan. I said, if we can do this plan for a year, we will be in a better place. But then when we started seeing what the predictions were in the economic reports about how how long it's going to take us to recover, and they're saying anywhere from three to five years, I said, well, if we can do this a little longer, then we can control it. And so that's when I first put out my plan. And then, um, and you know, a lot of people said, oh, it can never happen. You know, this is something that can never happen. And last week, we saw a member of Congress introduce a similar bill proposing $1,200 a month for economic recovery. And they had an entire congressional caucus sign on to that and other members sign on to that. that. Now, in our district, all my competitors said it could never happen. And look what just happened last Friday. And it's funny because this uh, pandemic has really put a hamper on many not only, you know, the senior community, but the young families as well. Right, because we're dealing with the pandemic, and I think we all need to understand where we are. Um, And right now, we see that, you know, we may feel like, okay, everything's returning back, but no, we're going to keep, we're going to decline economically if we don't do something. Um, The Delta variant, we have no control. It just makes people more apprehensive of spending. So we see where we are. And we see that we have to do something. Trust me, Congress knows they have to do something because the last year, what made me write the bill is as I was going to D.C., that was the number one topic. How do we help the economy? Number one topic. And so that's where we came up with that bill. And I think that, you know, one of the reasons why our district has suffered for so long is because we haven't had people who've been successful in business and economics really start crafting policies. And I have been successful in business for years, for for years. When I first took over my company, um, they told me it was a failing company. Everybody said, oh, you're never going to get it on its feet. And we started grossing more than $20 million a year. After everybody said it can't be done. And what needs to be done is just creativity and hope that we can get there. And we worked hard night and day. And we're in the same place right now. Everybody who's running for Congress, all these elected officials who say it can't be done, that is their mindset. That's why they haven't broken through the ceiling of prosperity. That's why they haven't pushed our district towards the place where our seniors are confident that they'll be taken care of. And so that's why we need to shift and have someone who's not tainted with I can't, but who really sees I can. And I'm that person because every time they said I couldn't, I've done it. Hard work pays off, right? Yes. (laughs) You know, people ask me, like, well, you're 42. How are you successful like this? And I always tell them that, you know, I feel like I was in school all of my life. Um, I was raising my daughter as a single parent. 
while I was in Howard, while I was going through the um, University of Maryland to get my master's in business administration, while I was in law school, you know, it was just hard work because I knew if I didn't have the proper education, if I wasn't my best every single day, if I didn't work longer and harder than everyone, it was I, I couldn't make it. And my parents are immigrants who came to this country for a better life. And they always tell me, you know, you are my life insurance policy. You know, <laughs> you're my uh, retirement plan. We invested in you. And so I take it seriously. And so when the community stepped up for me and helped me with my daughter and, you know, I'm married now. So and helped me support me to this level. I understand my duty, all that sacrifice, all the support, you know, all the people you see who smile at you and say, you can do it that they invested in me to come back and do it for them, and that's why I'm doing this. Yes, they did, and they, I'm sure they're very proud of you and all your, I hope. <laughs> and, and all your accomplishments. Now, if, if elected into Congress, what actions will you take to try to make our neighborhoods better and safer? Well, the first thing that we have to do, um, as I mentioned, is take the economic justice that we need, take that very seri seriously, because of some of the crime that we see going on is because there's a lot of kids who drop out of school. They're dropping out of school because they see no end. They're dropping out of school because they do have, um, they can't learn in school um, and they don't have jobs. And so I think we can really start having an economic program to have more vocational schools so we can keep them occupied, more continuous um, school, continuing education, so they can start learning um, skills or even professional skills. And I do want to create a program which actually gives money to seniors who want to facilitate those programs. One of the biggest things that I've realized is that our seniors have a wealth of knowledge. And so if they decide that they wanted to take two days a week and teach a group of people, a group of youngsters who want to learn how to manage a business, that they should be able to do that and participate in some kind of stipend and get a grant for doing that. We need the knowledge to be transferred through generations. In a business, the biggest thing that we always say that we need to keep is that institutional knowledge. The generation who went before me, tell me what you learned, what you encountered, and how I can prevent it. And we need to do that again in our district. Let's have the seniors tell the younger people what they learned, how they did it, so they can avoid it. And that would have an economic impact for both, and it would impact safety because now they have hope. Now they have something to do. The second thing that I would do to increase safety is to ensure that we have more people from our district who are actually policing, that they're involved in the process, and in that policing process that we are incorporating mental health. Because we know a lot of the people who are getting caught up or even homeless, there are mental health issues that have not been recognized. And you and I both know when we were growing up, there wasn't this push for mental health. It was always like, eh, you know that guy. He's kind of funny. You know, but we never knew what it was. Now with all the technology and all the advancement, what if we start increasing and making mental health more accessible so we're not criminalizing people who just need help and we're not letting them just roam and to their own um, their own issues and problems, and they're taking it out on everyone. And so I think those two things really need to be pushed and driven in Congress to make sure that bills are being passed that support continuing education, and bills are being passed for mental health to start increasing the safety in our district. Yes, indeed. And since we're on the topic of policing and community, it's become that having a job in law enforcement 
has become one of the toughest jobs to have out there. Yeah. And um, how can we get our communities and police to interact better with each other? What is your take and input on police reform? Well, you know, I don't know if you know, but my husband, my brother-in-law, we have, he has a whole bunch of brothers. There's like um, seven of them, all from New York, from Rosedale. And six of his brothers are police officers, retired now. He only has one brother who's still in the police force. And so I see how much the police force has impacted them. I see the trauma that they've been through. And at the time when they became police officers in New York was around the time when they started really recruiting a lot of people from the community to join the police force. Do you remember that? Yes, yes, yes. And now it's tough for them to even recruit. Yep, yep. That was during the time. And so all of them, they recruited all six of my husband's brothers, my brother-in-laws, and that's what they did. And I think the mental strain on them and the mental strain around them, I think it's really put a lot of pressure on people. And now with the issues that we're seeing, it's highlighting something that even they can talk to and they can attest to, that when you're part of the police force and the police attorney, you know, they have resources available, but the need is so high that you don't always get the treatment you need. And sometimes you do need to retire. And a lot of times there are injustices that you see, but you don't feel comfortable reporting it because you don't want to be, your disabilities to be cut. You don't want something to happen to you. And so sometimes we find that that safe place to actually report misdoing isn't present in the police force. And so I think when we start looking at what should we do for the police force, it should be more of a structured analysis where we have safe places where police officers feel like, hey, I can report what's going on and it will be handled correctly. And not, I'm afraid of retaliation, so I say nothing and negative cultures continue. Um, I saw something similar to that in healthcare. In healthcare, there was a time where there was a lot of fraud and abuse. And what we did in Congress is that they started writing bills that incorporated more of a checks and balances. So now every healthcare agency has to go through surveys. They have to pass a certain survey. They have to be up to mustard. This is a different body that comes in and surveys. It is part of healthcare, but it's not directly attached to your business. We could use some of that for our police forces, but we have some law enforcement agencies who are doing surveys, doing health steps, who are doing best practices. All these things have been done before in other industries. Why not do it in policing to make sure that we can now rehabilitate the the uh, perception of police officers, the reputation of our police policing system, and put more confidence in the people in the who they're policing. That they feel like, okay, well, we know you have a body that's really checking on you guys, and you're really instituting the best practices. Yes. Kings Point has nearly 9,000 residents, and um, they have the luxury to have certain programs implemented to help and keep the residents informed. One of the is the one we're right on right now, which is the podcast platform. This was created back in July of 2020 during quarantine to reach out to the residents and keep them informed. It has become so successful that we were allowed to keep the platform going because we started getting the city involved and getting different programs involved and enlightening the residents with content. That's awesome. Some people and some communities don't have that luxury. In some of our cities and some of our neighborhoods, residents have programs available to them that they don't even know about. And um, 
how can we bridge that gap? How can we get representatives to visit more, not only the senior centers, the youth centers, the you know the boys clubs, the you know the children's centers, to keep residents informed on what's happening in their community? Well, I think it's a two-step approach, right? Coming into the community, talking to the community, that comes from the candidate's heart. Um, I love visiting Kings Point. I come on Tuesdays, talk to everybody. I always say that, you know, when I go out of Kings Point, I always see my Kings Point people. I'm like, hey, <laughs> and I recognize them. Um, but that really comes from the heart of the representative, understanding that I can only do my job well if I'm in communication with you. And all the solutions, the answers, they really do come from talking to the people who are suffering the most. So it's very important to stay grounded and talk to everyone. We have a president and a listening tour, um, and I'm always there talking and asking, how can I help so I can get a better understanding? But the second fold also is infrastructure that we're looking at. We have to make sure that all the communities have access to Wi-Fi. We need to make sure that everyone who has Wi-Fi or has the capability, that we actually have educational programs where we're teaching seniors how to use it. One of the partners that we have in Palm Beach, they have an excellent IT program where every Wednesday and Friday they teach seniors how to use their email, how to get onto podcasts, how to surf the Internet. And it's a great opportunity for socialization and so they can actually start communicating a lot more. One of the things that a lot of people don't realize is because we've switched to technology and, you know, COVID kind of pushed us further into that place where everybody expects you to communicate by a tweet or email. You know, did you send me an email? Like they're looking for that digital connection, ignoring that nothing is going to supersede that personal touch. And that's what we have to make sure that those two groups are intertwining. And to be honest with you, I look at my kids. My kids are 17 and 18. And I'm like, wow, this generation is really lacking socialization and personal skills that our seniors have mastered. They know how to have relationships. They know how to maintain relationships. And I think we need to merge the two. Yes, it's a balance, trying to balance them. Because mm -hmm. it's true when, you know, growing up, we didn't have phones. We were outside and sometimes didn't even want to come in. We were enjoying ourselves playing out in the street all the time till your parents called you to get your butt inside the house. And... um it's funny because quarantine has made our seniors a lot brighter. A lot of them had a turn to Zoom, Skype, FaceTime to actually, you know, reach out to their loved ones. So, yep. yes, a lot of them have learned how to, you know, use the technology. Now, knowing that Kings Point has a pretty large gay residency, what is your stance on the LGBTQ rights? Well, I think that we have to make sure that we're protecting LGBTQ rights um, and not just saying it, giving the lip service. There's been some legislation that has been passed that has been terrible for us. There's been um, practices that we know go on, even when it comes to employment, which has to do with discrimination, um, that we know are going on. And we haven't seen real legislation passed. And I sincerely believe it's because we haven't really taken a stand as far as allies to say we're not going to support or tolerate any kind of discrimination or unequal treatment for anyone. And that really does take a unified stand. And I'm ready and willing to champion that. And I've been championing that because I've always recognized that 
if you don't stand up for when they're attacking your your counterpart, your friend, you know, the person you grew up with just because who they are, when they're done with that person, they're coming for you. We're never going to be safe. And so when we turn a blind eye to the discrimination that is for the LGBTQ community and we realize how many trans are actually dying and being killed and we say nothing, you know, and I always say those are our children. Why should anyone have to live like that? Those are our parents and they're allowed to be assaulted and everyone's not in an uproar. These are the things that we have to take a stand on now and define ourselves and this generation for who are we. We can't say we believe in equality, but we allow this kind of brutality and discrimination. Exactly. It's all about respect and equality. And it's funny because you said you grew up in New York. I'm born and raised in New York, and uh, I've been down here since 2000. But I come from an old school family that taught me how to respect and treat others the way I want to be treated. Mm-hmm. And that's very important to practice. And uh, my next question is, um, this country was built more going back, if you go into the history books and stuff, um, our ancestors, families, you know, immigrants came into this country to, to take on hard jobs, to help in construction, to help in steel, to help in just labor and doing all kinds of work for a better life. What is your stance on immigration reform being that it's a such that it's such a hot topic in Washington? Well, you know, primarily I think we have to really address the humanitarian concerns and take on a more humanitarian approach. What we saw happen in the Trump administration could never happen again. And we have to ensure that anytime we approach any kind of immigration issue, we have our humanitarian lenses on first and foremost. The second thing that I think is very, very important is that we have a clear pathway to citizenship. With the amount of the increases of how much money it costs to become a citizen, with the amount of TPS back and forth, if you're going to be able to, the issues we have going back and forth with DACA, we have to take a stance and make sure that there's a clear pathway to citizenship and to make sure that we're addressing the root cause of the migration. And there's something else that I wanted to make note of, that you know we have to really understand what happens with different types of immigrants. Not all immigrants are treated the same. And we have to address that. If we're standing for equality, then we have to have equal treatment for all immigrants. And we Correct. have to make sure that if they're searching political asylum, that we actually go by the guidelines for political asylum and not pretend that our our um, immigration system is equal. And I think it really starts in those three areas. Yes, and these families, they come across, all they want is a better life for their families. They want good-paying jobs. They want to be able to sustain and survive. And since we're on economy, what is your stance on economic security and income equality? And what do you think is a fair minimum wage? Well, I definitely believe that a fair minimum wage is at least 15. And we've seen that just by the stat, the data and the statistics that have come through about what it costs to actually live in the United States, um, the number of hours and work that, well, that's being put in, the inflation that has occurred, and to see that our minimum wage hasn't been in, in line with inflation, you know, that's kind of where we need to take a step back and ask ourselves, what are we doing? Are we actually promoting poverty? 
We have to ask ourselves that as a country. And that's why I think that if we do not move to $15, 100% quickly, we will be promoting poverty. So I do definitely believe in $15 um, per, per hour. And I also think that we have to strengthen our unions. We must. As we see the infrastructure bill is coming, the infrastructure bill is going to be giving a lot of jobs for a lot of our working class Americans. And we have to protect them and allow them to be able to negotiate more, negotiate their, their wages to make sure that it's fair for them also. So if we want to actually increase the economy, we have to do those two things, raise the minimum wage, push and pass the PRO Act, strengthen our unions, and then we also have to create jobs. Unfortunately, in the district, I feel like the major reason we haven't seen a more influx of jobs is because we haven't had members of Congress who know how to stimulate the economy and create jobs. I've created over 1,200 jobs in healthcare. For the, in the last two years, we created them. We had an uptick in jobs in healthcare when it came to COVID. We started training. We had the background, the health um, workers training, and we had the background checks, and we were able to get our people working in our district. And so I think these three things have to be paramount, and we have to be cautious on who we're electing because a lot of people will say, yes, I believe in prosperity, but when we look at the numbers of the places that they were actually, um, they were elected to, you know, you can't have a district that you're elected to that's one of the poorest districts since you've been there for the last 10 years and say that you know how to create prosperity. Well, if you knew how to, how come you haven't done it in your district? And it's dangerous because we know that in Kings Point, you have a lot of hardworking people who worked hard their whole life and came to retire. And so now you have someone who's, as they were leading, decimated economies. And now you want to come in and mess up the economy after I worked hard to retire here? So we have to be cautious and find people who can actually have economic recovery, who've done it, who've created jobs, who supported unions, and I've done all those things. And a big thank you to all the healthcare workers and a big kudos to them because the past year and a half going on two years, their job has been really, really hard to do. And especially with this surge coming and them having, you know, here they are thinking things are getting a little better and then it's like we're going backwards again. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't understand what it was like at that time. Um, during that time, it was all hands on deck. And I've always been working at the, on the executive capacity, but even I had to step up because at that point, there was even a shortage in gowns. And so we had to find the plastic painter's gowns. People were using trash bags. We had to try and get all the PPE we could find. It was such a tough time for our healthcare workers that they were literally burning out, working night and day, wearing painter's, painter's um, cover-ups. And so it was such a hard time. That's why we fought so hard to make sure they were compensated. We fought so hard to make sure that if you're out there, I'm there with you. Because you have to see your executive there with you. If you're risking your life, I got to be next to you because I can't act out of you as I'm in my office. And so we hit the streets and we were with them. And it's funny because now in some states, it's like they're going through it all over again. We're going through it all over again here in Florida. I don't know if you know. But oh, yes, I do. And it's we're, horrible. We're, yeah, we're here again, and it's very quiet, and it's, it's a whisper. I, I thank God every day that, you know, we do have Biden as president, and so he's been taking a lot of steps to make sure we have our PPE. Gowns are flowing. He's really monitoring the situation. 
whereas the last president ignored it and we were kind of fight, stuck fighting for ourselves in the community. So I'm happy and I feel more comfortable this time around as it's evolving. You know, we have some hindrances um, because our governor is not totally on board with the parameters that we need. But I'm confident that with a strong Democrat president who's actually taking note of science and paying attention, and with us having these slim majorities, that we can actually protect South Florida and not be in that situation again. Yes, indeed. You know, you mentioned your daughter earlier and her, you know, her obstacles in learning and um, that you're an advocate for good education. What is your input on schooling? Do you feel we got good educational programs for our youth or can we do a lot better? Our children are our future. They're going to be running things years to come. Yeah, I, I think that we have some good programs. We just don't have enough funding. And when I first started approaching um, education, started advocating about education, one of the things that we confronted, even with members of Congress, they said, well, we can't do anything about education because that's under the peer review of the state and that the most they can give is like 2%. Then I had them take a closer look and I said, wait a minute, if we look at what's really going on in schools, we see that there's a pandemic of learning issues and developmental issues rising. What that allows Congress to do is send funding through health care. And those, that funding, the money that comes through healthcare, can go into the schools for programs or developmental issues, for um, any kind of therapies. And that's what they ended up doing now this time around when they sent that $3 billion. The same way we proposed it 10 years ago is what they used to bring it in. So what we need to do is build from there. Let's identify more early learning um, programs. Let's identify more programs to make sure the funding is going directly into those programs. The great thing about having the money coming in, now we can actually look at what's successful and what's not. And when I'm in Congress, I will write more legislation to ensure that, okay, we're going to send more money for these types of products, these types of programs. But that first comes now by getting the money and looking at to see which programs work the best. So I do believe they're there, but they're not as widespread yet because we just received that money probably two or a month ago by now. Yeah, we could always do a little better. Mm -hmm. Well, Sheila, my last question for you is one that boggles the mind. Um, this country, I mean, we were doing so well, and in the past few years there has been so much division, so much negativity, so much back and forth um, that is sad. It's like we've taken two steps forward, or excuse me, one step forward and two or three steps backwards. What is your stance on social and racial justice? Ooh, that's a heavy question. Um, my stance is that we need to be serious and lean into social justice. Uh, when we talk about social justice, there are remnants of sexism, racism, bigotry that are latent in our community. It's latent in our institutions. It's just been laying there and we've been pretending it doesn't exist. But it does exist and we must be very, very strong on this position right here and right now. The George Floyd Act, it was a step, we're moving forward, but we have to keep pushing. And we have to start looking at what are the root causes and I believe 110% some of the root causes is that we've been silent when it came to these white supremacist groups. 
We've allowed them to function, spread hate, be terrorists in our country, and act like it's not going on. The media has perpetuated this them versus us, where it is people in minority communities against the welfare of everyone, and we never called them out. Recently, even in an article, they wrote an article on me and said, oh, she funded, she self-funded her campaign this amount of money, but where could she have gotten that money? Because she lives in one of the poorest districts in the, in the country, which is our district. And I'm 42 years old. But when you look at it, I've been a healthcare executive for more than 15 years. I've, I'm married to an attorney who does discrimination, who's very successful, but the narrative they wanted to place was, oh, let's question it, and maybe she stole it. That's part of social injustice. Why is it when a woman is self-made, she's questioned, especially a black woman, she's questioned it's made to seem like she stole it. But when it's somebody else, like Rick Scott, who actually did steal, they praised his work ethic and how successful he was. We have to really stand strong and start adjusting and addressing every impartiality. Point it out. Let's clean it up now. Because when we let this go on, it continues the stereotype of those people against us. The truth is that we're all humans. We must be looking at ourselves from the humanitarian perspective. I suffer like you suffer. If my child hurts, I cry, just like if your child hurts. If your parent hurts, you cry, just like I cry for my parents. And that's who we are. So any kind of injustice to anyone is an injustice to everyone, and we have to stand up. And it's true, because what comes to mind as you was giving me your answer is that you can be a community servant, you can do so many positive and good things, and right away that one negative thing that may come out or gets, you know, rumored and stuff is what everybody seems to hear and react on, which is horrible. Yes, yeah, especially the media. And it's funny because one of the questions they asked me is, oh, do I think I can buy an election? And I laughed because I said, you know, I ran last time. And when I ran, our campaigns have always been grassroots. That's what we do. We hit the floor. We're proud to employ people who knock on doors, who walk with us and talk to the community. But when we were handing out over 100,000 masks, when we were delivering over 10,000 meals, when we were helping people get health care who lost their jobs, the media never talked about our campaign. But once we had money in our campaign, they talked about our campaign negatively to say that somehow maybe you could have stolen it because we can't identify because you live in this area. Yeah. Let's ask ourselves, what is the media doing at that point? They never praised success. They never praised the hard work. They never praised candidates who are on the ground caring about the people. But when it comes to creating any kind of um, chaos or drama, they're there to create it. And I believe the media must be accountable for where we have become in our social justice fight. Exactly. And I agree. Now, Sheila, I'm going to ask you, do you have a campaign website or any contact information you would like to share with the residents of Kings Point? That way, if they have any questions or might want to volunteer in helping in your campaign or just reach out to you in any form, can you share that yes. with us? Yes, you can definitely reach me on my website, which is Sheila, S-H-E-I-L-A for Congress, dot com. And you can even give me a call at 
668-568-5358. Now, if I don't answer, you can always text me. Um, sometimes when I'm home, my Wi-Fi and everything's funny, but I get all the text messages, but I love to hear from the community. So um, please feel free to call me. And when you call, you can just say, hey, Sheila, because they all do. <laughs> and I, I'll just love to reach out and stay in contact. That's awesome. And I'm sure you'll come by and visit them also. Now, the floor is yours. Any last words for the residents? Yes, I would like to tell everyone that it's truly been a pleasure meeting everyone, talking to everyone. And when we're looking at candidates in this race, we have to really look at the history. Everybody has a history. I have specifically been lobbying and fighting for seniors. My business is in home health, where we have serviced the largest amount of seniors who um, work healthcare professionals who go into seniors' homes and allow them to retire with dignity. We were the first people to actually stand up in Congress and say our seniors have the right and deserve to retire at home with dignity. They should not have to be in nursing homes when these services can be done at home at in a cheaper rate. And we pushed that and we got expanded home care for most of our seniors. This is just us going to another level. I've been in Congress. I've been advocating, I've been writing policies, I've been having meetings with different elected officials in Congress, senators, and members of House of, Cong House of Representatives. Because we've been so successful, I was invited. And so there's people who say, well, you've never been elected to office, but I've been doing the work. I was asked to come in and comment and talk about how we can move the district forward without being elected official because I've already done the work of being successful in bringing health care to the community, bringing jobs, and even moving our community towards more um, comprehensive growth. And that's what I want to do on a larger scale. So I'm running this campaign for you. This is my step towards actually having real change and writing bills in Congress that will make your life better. This will not give me a promotion. I will not make more money. But what I will be able to do is pay back my debt to you, the people who encouraged me, who supported me, who when they saw my daughter, they made her smile, who didn't know that I was sitting there raising a daughter not knowing how I can pay my bills. But I worked hard and I got there. And so this is me paying my debt back to you. So I thank you so much, Raul, for allowing me to be here speaking today. Tell your whole family I said hello. I love all of them, especially your wife. And thank you so much, Kings Point. Well, there you have it, Kings Point, our one-in-one -one today with candidate for Congress, Sheila Sheffield McCormick. Broward County District 20 special election, which will be in November of this year for the empty seat vacated by the passing of the late Alcee Hastings. And Sheila, on behalf of the board, the staff, the residents, and myself, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for participating in this interview and to help enlighten our seniors. And uh, just want to wish you the best and good luck on the upcoming election. Thank you so much, and enjoy the rest of your day. And feel free to reach out to me if you want to come back and address the residents one more time before the election. We'll be more than glad to have you back. Wonderful. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Talk right. to you soon. Bye. Bye. Take care. Bye.